First, it's been hard to miss the images of destruction in Ukraine. Homes bombed, villages and cities ruined. It seems to be an explicit new Russian tactic. Well, European and G7 leaders met in Berlin this week to tackle this head-on while the war is still on. The EU President Ursula von der Leyen described the need with passion. We have no time to waste. The scale of destruction is staggering. The World Bank puts the cost of the damage at 350 billion euros. This is for sure more than one country or one union can provide alone. We need all hands on deck. Ursula von der Leyen. It's difficult to estimate how much the reconstruction will cost, particularly since the war is still ongoing. But the World Bank reported in September it would be upward of $350 billion. Therefore, might we see the creation of a 21st century Marshall Plan? similar to the initiative that funded the reconstruction in Western Europe after World War II. Well, Dan Rundy's been pondering this rather a lot. He's based at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, and his upcoming book title betrays some of his thinking. It's to be called The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. Hello there, Dan. Geraldine, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, you were at the meeting in Berlin this week, were you? I was. I'm a bit jet lagged still. But yes, I was. It was an important meeting. Um, There's been a series of meetings looking at the thinking about the reconstruction of of Ukraine since the beginning of the war, which seems a little counterintuitive because the war is still going on. And, And you referenced that in your in your opening remarks. Yes, indeed. And we had a, a, quite a good dis- a description of it just last week from a, a, a major general talking about it. So, I mean, it's curious. I think listeners will say, wh- why now? Well, I think it's a good question for your listeners. But I, I want to remind your listeners, during World War II, the powers, uh, the United States, Australia, the United Kingdom, all came together um, about 30 countries for what was called the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 to plan the rebuilding of the world way before the end of, of, of World War II. So there is a there is precedent for this sort of thinking and planning. We, we want to see as a Ukraine when this is we I expect that Ukraine will win this war and we should hope we should all fervently hope that Ukraine wins this war. And we all have a stake in Ukraine's winning this war, but we also have a stake in Ukraine winning the peace. And I do think even, I know it may feel a little far away in Australia, Geraldine, for some of your listeners to say, well, why should we care about Ukraine, both in terms of supporting it militarily, but also from an economic assistance standpoint, from a humanitarian assistance standpoint. But I think uh, your listeners have a a big stake in the outcome of what happens in Ukraine and in the success of Ukraine. Mm. Look, you wrote a piece for Politico this week, making the argument that European and G7 development finance institutions need to play a role in funding some of the more immediate needs, um, you know, businesses, for instance, uh, still operating in Ukraine, loans for that, insurance for shipping, logistics. Now, could you explain why this matters and how might it work? Sure. Thanks for asking. So the expenses for rebuilding Ukraine are enormous. There have been all sorts of estimates thrown around. 
let's just say it's going to be very, very expensive in the hundreds of billions of dollars. There's going to be some foreign assistance, the sort of thing that your Department of of Foreign Affairs and and Trade, Mm -hmm. DFAT, would provide. There'll also be the sort of thing that the U.S. Agency for International Development, the foreign aid arm of the U.S. government, will provide. So they'll provide certain kinds of immediate emergency assistance and also sort of longer-term uh, capacity building and construction and immediate immediate things. Then there'll be other institutions like the World Bank and other institutions like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Australia is a shareholder in both the World Bank, an important donor to the World Bank, and is also a shareholder in the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development Bank, which was the institution set up for the post-Soviet space after the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's also a series of alphabet soup institutions with funny acronyms that provide financing and guarantees to help get the private sector to to invest and to uh, lend money, co-invest with the private sector, provides guarantees. These are development finance institutions. DFIs. Most, yeah, DFIs. Mm-hmm. Most most all of the G7 countries Australia does not currently have a DFI per se it has is is very important grant making capacities out of DFAT but doesn't have a DFI the way so the United States has the development finance corporation mm-hmm. or in the in the UK they have something called B it's now called BII don't ask me for what it stands for but it's their it's their development uh, finance institution there's one in France called Proparco right. and so i wrote this uh, opinion piece saying Look, the G7 has these institutions. Most of the European Union institutions also have these institutions. A big chunk of the reconstruction, there's not going to be enough foreign aid from DFAT or USAID on our own to rebuild Ukraine. And we're going to need different buckets of money and resources to rebuild Ukraine. One of those buckets will be foreign aid, humanitarian aid, reconstruction aid. I can feel people saying, uh, okay, we like the idea, but uh, you would think that a lot of prudence would have to be uh, um, applied right now because you might rebuild and Russians just come in and and knock it over. I mean, when no one knows how long this war is going to go on. So it's just, again, a question of timing, I suppose. Or are you going back into those cities which have been completely liberated? Right. So I think that's, you're absolutely right, Geraldine. I think that's the, that's the big concern is, well, if I rebuild a, a rail station, is it going to get bombed tomorrow? So I do think these are, these are important considerations. There have been parts of the country that have been largely untouched by the war, though, you know, there's been some, let me describe them as random but dangerous missile strikes or drone strikes in parts of Western Ukraine, though it's been less less intense in those parts of the countries. And there have been other parts of the countries that were largely liberated at the beginning of the war, sort of that north north of of of, of Kiev. Mm. And so those areas have been sort of been left alone. That's not where the front is anymore, but there was da- war damage there. So because if you say the word Ukraine right now, people kind of freeze up. One of the things we that development finance institutions could be doing is to say, we're going to help put together a uh, a package of insurance and reinsurance in partnership with institutions like MEGA, which is another funny acronym organization out of the World Bank, which provides certain kinds of insurance to encourage certain sorts of economic activities by the private sector to, to happen. You're, you're absolutely right that we have to think about 
you know, I don't want to rebuild something and have it bomb, but there are parts of the country that have been largely liberated and are free of Russian right. attacks. Now, and now, so you could start there. The other issue which must be addressed is corruption. Uh, this has been a major issue in pre-war Ukraine, which has clearly put a lot of investors off. How are you going to guarantee that funds invested or donated aren't funneled away? Thanks, Geraldine. I think this is a very, very important question. And I think that if you look at the Transparency International Index and you look at sort of where does Ukraine stand in the rankings, it sort of stands at sort of the same level as about Indonesia or or, or Panama. Mm or Mexico. And I think that it is, they do have problems of governance and they do have problems of corruption, but many other countries that we know and work in have them as well. But I think in some ways, Russian disinformation has been successful in saying, well, Ukraine is is an especially corrupt country. I'm not sure that's totally, you're not saying that, Geraldine, but many people have sort of have said that. Well, I must say, Angela, I think, Angela Merkel virtually hinted at that, you know. Um, yeah, she virtually, so I, I think we shouldn't do it. Yeah, I would, I would, I would in their defense say we shouldn't define their society at, by their corruption. They do have corruption. I think one thing is, I think they've made a lot of progress on corruption since 2014. And sometimes in societies that are fighting corruption and confronting corruption, you see more cases of it. It's sort of like opening up, lifting up a rock and seeing all the ants run around and this sort mm-hmm. of a thing. And you say, well, is, well, the ants were there before, but you're now uncovering it and taking it on. So I think you're right that it is a corrupt place and it's had it's got governance challenges. But I think it's about at the same level as a place like Indonesia, a place like your your listeners know well, if you look at sort of its rankings and the global rankings. So, and I think they've, they've taken this on, I think for them to join the European Union, which has been, was a commitment made um, back in June, it's sort of the ultimate of, you know, the, the nicest of clubs you could join, that there's going to be a number of things they're going to have to do, one of which is to co- confront a number of things to make their society a less corrupt place and a better governed okay. place. Okay, well, uh, what would you say is the first order need then? I mean, where would you begin? What, what are you saying to people who might invest? So, so I think the first thing is, obviously, you've got to, they've got to win the war, the, of course. But I think in terms of the sorts of things that there's a, there's a series of things you want to do to get people to come back. Like a lot of the best brains, some of them have left the country. You want them to come back. So there's some basic things people want to know. Do I have, do I have a house to return to? So one of the things we're going to have to deal with very quickly is housing issues. Do I have a school where my kid can go to school? So are we making sure that the schools are stood up? And then the third is, do I have some kind of economic activity? So you probably want to be supporting uh, some, uh, financing of small business loans so people can start economic activity. There are some parts of the economy that have been untouched by the war. Mm. One of the things, as I've gotten to know Ukraine, the, the economy made up of three things, hands, which is manufacturing, brains, which is the ICT and digital sector, and grains. And so the entire digital sector has been has been largely unimpacted by the war. So there's a, you know there's an entire there's there have been a number of unicorns uh, these you know billion dollar mm. IPO that have come out of Ukraine. So there's many capable there are many tens of thousands of unbelievably capable people. This is a country with enormous potential. It's got great talent. They want to be a part of the Euro-Atlantic community. 
they've been offered, in addition to joining the European Union, they've been offered to join the OECD. As you know, Geraldine, um, Matthias Corman, who's an Australian, mm-hmm. is the head of the OECD. I saw him uh, two days ago at the, or, you know, earlier this week at the at the G7. He was there. And he spoke, and and he's he's quite adamant in trying in t- making ma- bringing Ukraine along so that someday it becomes a member of the OECD, which is also a really important institution. Very, Australia is a member of the OECD. Very, no, very interesting that you've laid it out like that. Look, final question, really: the Marshall Plan, the one after World War II, had a, a very important soft power dimension for the United States, like, acutely important. Uh, is that also an important angle in your thinking? Enlightened. <laughs> self-interest, I think you talk about it. Yes, I, I think it is. I think we have to think about, we want to have a Ukraine that's as wealthy as Poland. It's about one-fourth as wealthy as Poland, has the the quality of governance of, say, the Czech Republic, has the agricultural potential of an Australia, has the uh, the tech sector of Israel, and has the defense capacities of, say, Sweden and Finland, which are very strong, have very strong self-defense forces, or a Switzerland, so that nobody ever messes with Ukraine ever again, and that it's firmly embedded in the Euro-Atlantic community. And when I say that, I'm thinking also of that it sees Australia as a as a friend and ally, and I know Australia is sending weapons, but I think one of the things I want to leave your listeners with is Australia has an important role to play on the soft power side as well. The U.S. has a role to play, and yes, we should think about it as as a Marshall Plan is a good way is a is a good kind of mental shorthand for this. But we want to rebuild Ukraine so that it's strong and a great trading partner for for Australia, for the United States. But also, if we if we succeed in defeating Russia, it means it's going to make it that much harder for China to go after Taiwan. And if Ukraine succeeds as a democracy, and it's a very healthy democracy, it's a very vibrant democracy, but also succeeds economically, it's a it's a it's it's the best rebuke we can think of to to Putin and the sort of authoritarian repression that he's peddling. It's All just right. it's just, and what he's done is just so terrible. Well, thanks, Dan. Very nice to have you join us and to hear all that sort of optimistic planning. Um, thank you for your time, Geraldine. Thanks so much for having me, Dan Rundy from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington and his book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, is published by Simon & Schuster and I think it's just out now. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.